Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Howard Tai, and Roland Frazier. Today, I'm speaking with Tyler Jeffcoat, the founder and CEO of Seller Accountant, and we will be talking a lot about money, accounting, finance, cash flow, and even exiting your business. This ep episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Tyler, I started Hadley Designs back in 2015 and grew it to an eight-figure brand in seven years, but I certainly made a lot of mistakes along the way that made the path of getting to eight figures take a lot longer than it really needed to. There were times where I really doubted myself as a leader or trying to figure out if I actually had a real brand or could I get a return on my investment with my capital because e-commerce businesses suck up so much cash up front. I wish I would have had a guide along the way to help me overcome a lot of those stumbling blocks and steer clear to move quicker to that eight-figure mark. To all of our listeners, if you've hit a similar plateau and you want to know the next steps to take your business to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com, that's ecom with two M's, to learn more. And as a special bonus to my podcast listeners, this month I'm giving away one $10,000 comprehensive business strategy audit session at no cost. All you need to do is email me at josh at ecombreakthrough.com, and in your subject line say strategy audit, and plead your case as to why I should choose you and your business to work with for this month. And if you don't win this month, don't worry because you'll be entered for future months to come. Before introducing today's guest, I want to give a big thank you to Stephen Pope and thank him for ref referring Tyler as our guest for the podcast today. Stephen Pope is the founder of My Amazon Guy, a marketing agency with 250 brands that are managed. You can obtain free PPC and SEO tips by visiting myamazonguy.com slash PPC. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Tyler Jeffcoat. Tyler is the founder and CEO of Seller Accountant, where he exercises his passion for helping sellers maximize their businesses. Tyler provides financial coaching for sellers, totaling more than $100 million per year in e-commerce sales. Tyler also leads the Sellers Roundtable, an exclusive mastermind group for seven- and eight-figure sellers. Before founding Seller Accountant, Tyler was the co-founder and managing partner for Care to Continue, a home health care company that grew from zero to 100 employees in four years. So, Tyler, welcome to the show. All right, Josh. Thanks for having me. Tyler, you, you are fairly well known, I would say, in this uh, Amazon e-commerce space. So I know our audience is going to be super excited to hear from you. But Tyler, why don't you uh, kind of get us started by, say, by telling us the transition that took you from home health care into seller accountant and what you're doing now. Yeah, during your intro, you mentioned making mistakes that made it uh, harder to get to eight figures than you thought it was going to be. And, you know, uh, lest you guys think this isn't true, just because I'm an accountant doesn't mean I didn't make some of the same mistakes. I just want to, you know, empathize with you there. Yeah, we we grew really quickly. And I think the long and short of it was that uh, two things. One is home health care is an amazing mission. It's a really difficult business model. It's 24-7, 365. Uh, when my nurses or CNAs or LPNs, when they screwed up, it can be someone's life that's at stake. And um, and so to be honest with you, it was a really stressful business, and I was not a very good husband and father during the last couple of years of that experiment. And then the second issue that really kind of catalyzed that was um, I had a really um, good business partnership where I was the the guy coming fresh out of grad school, he was the money, I was the operator. And it just, candidly, we got to a point where it was time for that partnership to end. And the way for it to end well was for uh, was for me to exit. And so I was really grateful to get to um, 
observe the business transition to a new leadership team. It didn't transition back to him. It just was to a new leadership team. And then, you know, we got to make a little money and pivot. And so, but, what, but the, the transition into accounting is I am an accountant. My, my MBA focus is finance. I'm kind of a finance guy that got hacked off because I had two grandparents that had really bad Alzheimer's experiences. And so we built this home healthcare company to try to do that better. Uh, I think we really accomplished a lot in that mission. I learned a lot about how to listen to customers. We literally got 30 of our target customers in a, in a room for a weekend and they named the company care to continue. They're the ones that built the essence of our brand. So this idea of what if we just went to the people who are going to use our service or our product and really ask them core questions and then build an essence and a delivery around what they want. Uh, I think that was the success story, you know, kind of behind the, the success of care to continue. And so, you know, but during my hundred day transition where I was contractually there, but there was a new leadership team running uh, because I'm accountant boy, I was relegated to kind of like, CFO bookkeeper for this 90 days, which to, to be honest with you, as a, as a, as a kind of a sales guy, visionary leader, that was not a, always a really easy role for me to be in. Cause I was definitely on the sidelines kind of with a clipboard keeping score. Um, but it, it forced me to realize how great our financial processes had become through lots of tears and heartache in that company, you know, and same kind of thing you guys deal with where there may have been $50,000 a week in payroll, or for you guys, it might've been satisfying a big PO, and you realize how tight cash flow can get. And so we skin our knees enough to kind of figure it out. And once I was back in the trenches, I was like, oh, this bookkeeping thing is really, really important. It's the reason we survived through the hardest growth stage of, of Care to Continue. Uh, I'm an accountant. What do I want to do now? My wife says I can't stay home. She says we're not moving to a city. What are we going to do? And, and so I had a friend approach me who was in the Amazon space. And he said, dude, you need to consider this e-commerce thing. Um, I was like, I don't know anything about e-commerce, except I was an eBay seller back in college and used to build guitars and stuff because I was bored. And I'm not even sure if I made any money doing it. Right. And so we got to looking at the space and I, um, I firmly believe, Josh, that there are there are riches and niches. If I can find something really, really, really narrow to be great at, I might be able to generate outsized value for my clients. And so. Ta-da, you know, we sold Care to Continue, went camping for with my wife and two daughters for the long weekend. And then the following Monday showed up to work with a laptop and a cell phone, uh, called three of my largest national competitors that I now know they're national competitors for accounting, decided to build a firm that just does bookkeeping and CFO. Um, candidly, I hate taxes. I have a CPA do my taxes. Thank God for them. I'm more of a forward thinking uh, accountant. I want to see how the numbers can impact our, our growth and our strategy. Fascinating. Fascinating. I think you have a, you know, an abnormal journey, but I think all of us do, right? Um, you didn't yeah. have a clear path of like, oh, I've always been in e-commerce. But I love that you've seen an example of exiting another business in a completely different industry um, because there are s similar principles. Jay Abraham does a, a really good job at this, right? He can see many different industries. And what I think happens too often is that everybody in the same industry just gets siloed into thinking this is the way e-commerce works. So we got to be implementing e-commerce best practices. But if you actually take a step back and you take some of the best practices from other industries, but then tweak them and refine them into your current industry, that's where you can open up some some major doors for yourself. So I think, Tyler, you come with a lot of experience. So what year was it that you kind of got turned up? into the Amazon ecosystem. Yeah, so right at the end of 2017 is when that the transaction happened. And so right at the very beginning of 2018 is when Seller Account was born. So yeah, about five years now, crazy. Awesome. So you've definitely, you've seen a lot. You've you've gone through the COVID spike. You've, you've been through the aggregator push as well, um, where everybody was just getting acquired by aggregators. Multiples were going through the roof. Now we've kind of come down off of that high recently. So what I would love to dive into here with your experience, Tyler, is you've worked with lots of brands. You're, you're helping manage accounting for over $100 million plus, plus of sales right now. I want to dive into what are some of the mistakes that you see sellers making? You know, when they come to you with their books, you're like, oh man, like, did you not realize X, Y, and Z is happening? Why don't you share that with our audience to hopefully glean just a few quick tips and maybe mistakes that our listeners could say, hey, let's make sure we're not making the, some of these basic mistakes. Yeah, I think the most basic mistake, and I'm hoping as we have kind of a, a fairly scaled audience here that, that no one's 
feeling to do this, but you really can't afford to opt out of your accounting. Like you, you don't have to do it. You can outsource. You don't have to even outsource it to me. You can hire someone to do this for you if you don't like doing accounting. But if, if whatever, whatever you're doing right now, however you feel about your business, if, if, if we were at a show, let's say we met up in Vegas at one of the national shows. And, and if you were tempted to only talk about the sales of your business, but really either had no idea what your profit was, or were kind of nervous that it may not be very good. That's a, that's a good indication that your numbers may not be telling you enough of a true story that you can, you know, pivot appropriately. Cause here's the reality. Uh, entrepreneurs, uh, Josh, Tyler, you, you that are listening to this show, we're really optimistic as a population. I mean, I am always almost 100% convinced that just over the next corner is going to be gold. And so unless I have really, really compelling data in my face that forces me to change my choices, I'm going to tend to just run thinking I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And so that's why you have to have really good bookkeeping because it should tell you bad news a few times a year. Like, ooh, I didn't realize my tacos had crept up to 22% on a product that I don't have the margin for. Okay, time to change the strategy, time to go back to my marketing team, time to make sure that I am aligned with my strategy. So that, that's an error number one is not having real accrual accounting where the months line up. Uh, yes, you could use it to get through due diligence if you were to sell the business. Yes, you're going to get a higher multiple. But also, more importantly, now you're not driving blind. You don't have mud on the windshield, right? And you can actually move forward. So I think that's the first most fundamental. If, if You may need to pause there and go fix that, right? I mean, that, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is failing to measure profitability and performance per SKU, which is hard, right? I mean, if you, I can't tell you how many of our CFO clients here at Seller Accountant, Josh, you know, they pay for uh, Tecometrics or for Helium 10 or Seller Labs or whichever, you know, we, we all pay for like seven of these tools, right? But they've never even clicked on the profits module, uploaded their cost of goods sold, and just kept an eye on how are my products performing each month? Uh, where am I seeing drag on my profitability? Yikes, Amazon fees went up or, oh my goodness, I'm getting a lot of pressure on my tacos. Um, and so it's important to not just look at the macro, although that's critical. You have to take a few moments occasionally, maybe it's not even every day, once a month, once a quarter, and look on a product by product level. If you've got a huge catalog, you're going to have to have a system that makes it to where you can sort your most important products, you know, because you're not going to be able to look at all of them. Um, so I think that's the second error. And, and then the third error that I see all the time right now, Josh, is you mentioned this early, but this is a very cash heavy business. Like we have a lot of capital that goes into these e-com shops. And we are surprised when we run out of it as we grow. And, and you don't have to be surprised. We can plan our cash flow in advance to use our past performance to predict, you know, to oversimplify this, by the way, if I needed $100,000 of inventory to generate a million dollars in revenue and my goal is to do $2 million in revenue, unless I do something dramatically more efficiently, I probably need an extra 100K in working capital, right? I'm going to have to grow my working capital in proportion with my scale. And, and in fact, I would expect it to get a little worse with scale because you've got more complexity to manage. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. So summarizing those, those three mistakes, you know, number one is not having just accrual accounting, right? That's just kind of the basics. Number two is measuring your SKUs profitability on a skew by skew basis. And then finally, like managing your cash flow and also forecasting, you know, predicting, budgeting, planning what your cash flow needs and working capital is going to be. So Tyler, I think there's so many areas that we could dive into. Let's go at a, at a high level. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about preparing to exit and all of those things, but let's go through kind of like basic metrics or maybe some like targets that people should be shooting towards. So let's talk about, you know, what, what would be the ideal tacos numbers that you see across all of your clients? Um, what's a, a good net margin percentage um, that you see across the board that people should be eyeing towards? Because And then finally, I think the last thing is like your gross um, margin percentage. I think those are like the three things that if we could just give people some targets, some ballparks to say, like, you should be shooting towards this. Um, what's your experience and advice for gross profit margin for your total return on ad spend? right? Tacos for Amazon sellers. And then last but not least, your net profit margin. 
Yeah, those are probably the three most interesting ones to think about, maybe adding your COGS percentage in there. But so the first thing I want to redefine, and you guys are already doing this, but I want to just state it. Instead of just doing the American gross profit, I want to go ahead and add advertising up above the line, especially uh, Mm. sponsored product uh, ads from Amazon. So we're getting a seller account. We call this PAG. So it's post advertising gross profit. In other words, I don't really understand how healthy product A is or how healthy my portfolio is before ads because of how crucial, even if you're direct to consumer, if you're doing just Facebook ads, it's so crucial. And so that true gross margin or PAG is what I call it. Um, Yeah, it's really, really crucial. And so I would say two years ago, Josh, the target was to get above 25% after advertising. We saw some pressure on margins um, coming out of the pandemic, uh, continued container costs, continued increases in advertising. And so for most products, if we are able to get above 20%, we're, we're okay. We're not thrilled. We wish we could still get that old 25, but 20% we're okay. My concern, my alarm bells start going off, Josh, if I see products that are consistently below 15% after ads. So again, mm. just to make sure you guys are clear, this is after refunds, of course, after our product cogs, after Amazon fees, and then after those advertising charges. If I'm not able to capture at least 15 points, I'm looking at a product that really isn't going to scale because the cost of capital of buying more of it is going to eat me up. And so if I have products that are consistently below 15, I want to look to phase them out in favor of products that are maybe closer to that 25, 30. Um, To give you a kind of an aspiration here, the the brands that sold for maximum multiple during the heat of the kind of aggregator kind of fever were guys that were getting 30, 35 points, in some cases, even a little better than that after ads. So that's a 35% growth profit margin after advertising, after Amazon fees. Your second question was about tacos in particular. And I want to reframe this question because I get, this is the one I get asked. If I, if I could say, what's the one question that CFO boy gets asked, whether it's in, you know, prosper or somewhere else, it's how much should I spend on ads? And the answer is always, I need you to start thinking about your ads plus your product cost to get sold as a single KPI, meaning Mm. I have really, really good margins on my product. Let's say that when I look at my P&L, so here's what I want you guys to do. Pull up your profit and loss statement for maybe the last quarter, some meaningful amount of data and put those percentages next to it on the right-hand side. If your product cost of goods sold is like 20 or 25% of sales, which is pretty good, you're going to have more budget for tacos. You're going to be able to spend maybe 15 points, maybe even a little bit more on tacos, and you're going to be okay. That's a premium product. Mm-hmm. That means I have the ability to put the foot on the gas. That means, and frankly, Josh, here's the question is, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can I get so much margin that I can afford to outspend mm. my competitors on ads and actually get those uh, precious, you know, real estate spaces? Now, let's think if you, again, if you pull up your P&L and maybe your product cost to get sold is more like, the average, by the way, is about 30, 33%. But let's say it's really high, okay. like 40 Like, let's say we're kind of getting closer to arbitrage kind of land where 40 points of every sales dollar are just going to buy the product. Mm. Oh boy, I'm going to have to have a tacos of like 5%. I'm going to have to really have a lean ad budget. And, And so again, I want you to start thinking about those two metrics in tandem because they're a seesaw. The better margin I have on COGS, the more I can afford to put the foot on the gas from a marketing standpoint. And the more expensive my product is for me to buy, relative to what my customer will pay me, eh, the more that I don't have a competitive advantage on cost. And I'm going to have to be really, really efficient with my advertising. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's jump. So the last portion of that kind of equation then is what percentage should be the Amazon fees, right? Um, what are you seeing there? Because with inflation, I mean, good grief, Amazon continues to raise their fees. It seems like every quarter now there's a new fee coming out, right? So what what are you seeing there right now? There's yeah, like, so what's the average? The study, I'm sorry. So, so in like 2021, I think we saw the average was total, by the way, think about what you're paying Amazon in total. So this is Amazon, your 15% commission, plus your pick and pack, plus like advertising. The entire Amazon, we called it the Bezos load, right? The Bezos load in 2021 was like 41% of your total P&L, which on one hand is like, good grief, that's a lot, but it's not as bad as it is now when it's closer to 48%. So think about that. We've been encroached on by Amazon to the tune of about seven points of profit over the last, you know, let's call it 24 months or so. And the the two leaders in the clubhouse are by far, uh, obviously Amazon has hiked FBA fees 
at least three times. Uh, the second, uh, Amazon has been become more aggressive in its um, in its uh, storage fees, and even in we used to be able to send a container just to one FC, and Amazon would do the nice slice dice split. Increasingly, we're seeing our clients, the larger ones, having to split their shipments and send it to Amazon because Amazon's no longer willing to foot the bill for that extra shipping. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the tacos number being just additional pressure on ads. And so, I think if you're if you're a premium, you know, you're going to pay Amazon the 15 points for the commission. You're going to pay at least 15 points for the FBA fee. So that's 30. You're going to feel really good if your Amazon fees are, are 30 points. Probably 35 percent is probably going to be more normal. And you did ask one more question earlier about just net profit. So if you think about yeah. this brand that has 20 percent after ads. And then if I can maybe have my overhead, this is all the software, consultants, contractors, rent, the whole nine yards. If I can have that be 10% and actually have a 10% double digit profit, I would call that good. I think from, can I get acquired? If I can get 15 or better, 15 points or better net profit, I'm kind of a premium target from a from an operating profit standpoint. Um, but you know, the game is really this, how can I get PAG, which is that true gross margin as high as possible. And then how can I be as lean and mean as possible below that gross margin line so that I'm capturing as many points as possible. Now, the other thing is, you know, the reason we talk more about PAG than we do about net profit at seller account is that mm -hmm. some sellers pay themselves, some of them don't. And so yep. sometimes overhead can be a little bit of a gooey situation to look into. But I think in general, if you're going to go to market, having a 15% net profit is really going to be premium. That would be really strong. Awesome. This has been awesome, Jeff. And this, uh, or Tyler, sorry, Tyler Jeffco. It always makes me want to say Jeff at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but Tyler, this is, this is awesome. So let's break this down um, from the top here. All right. To summarize mm -hmm. everything, because this is super valuable, even for myself. Like this allows me to say, Ooh, maybe we're weak here, um, but maybe we're crushing it over here. So you have your top line revenue. The next thing we have is you're going to have your cost of goods sold, right? So with your cost of goods sold, you said the average is about 30 to 35% is what you're seeing right now. Yeah, that's kind of landed cost. So if you kind of think about right. what it costs you to satisfy your Chinese PO and then do the duties freight into the States, I think across the board, we're seeing literally pretty close to a third, 33, 34%. So if you're below 30% or so, that's a good indication then, right? Yeah. Okay. Looking good. All right. Then next you have your Amazon fees that are going to come up. Right. And I think I'm going to split these up with the advertising separate. So with the, yes. your Amazon fees, that's your 15% commission plus the pick and pack, all that goes into the Amazon ecosystem. You're saying 30 to 35% is what you're seeing there. Is that yeah, right? To keep the numbers easy, it's probably another third. So you got about a third in your okay. main cost to be sold. You got about a third in normal Amazon fees. Um, okay, yes. cool. And then, so, all right. So at this point, we have 66%, right, of our revenue going to COGS and Amazon. And so what you're saying is that the last remaining portion for that POG number that you were talking about is your advertising expense, specifically on Amazon. So with your advertising expense, you said ideally you want to be between that 20 to 25 percent, you know, net gross margin, in, including um, the advertising costs in there. So that means you're going to be needing to sit around somewhere between 15 to 20 percent. Correct. Well, so if, we, if you think about it, we've got it split into thirds, a third in cogs, a third in Amazon fees. So we're we got 33 points left. Yep. I can spend between, you know, uh, roughly 10% on tacos in that model. Let's assume that's your cost of goods sold model. Then I'm really going to, so, so right, take another 10% away for ads. That leaves me with a 23% PAG or post advertising yep. gross profit. And I would say that's a really good target. Like, again, I, I would rather okay. aim for 25 and hit 23 than really flirt with 20 constantly. But yes, so that would be, that would be a fairly prototypical private label or kind of brand building seller on Amazon is, Third Amazon fees, third product cogs, uh, about a, a dime, about 10 points going to tacos. And then I've got 22, 23, 24% after ads that I can put towards my overhead. And mama wants a boat, you know, whatever it is, that's, that's the money. I have left. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. So with that, and then the other thing you mentioned is, hey, if you have really good cost of goods sold, right? You, you know, you might be 10 to 20%, right? Well, then you could ramp up your advertising spend, right? So 
you can kind of offset those things. Um, but the more profitable you are, the better. Like you said, some people were 30 to 35% that were really getting some premiums um, with all the acquisitions that were going on. So this is awesome. This gives us a lot to think about and, and great targets to shoot towards, especially like net profit margin. You said, you know, 10 is kind of the average you said, right? 15 means that you're really good, you know, looking good. You're a good candidate to be acquired. Is that correct? Yes. And and honestly, coming out of like 2022, I would actually say that, you know, 10% was actually probably pretty good because we did see a lot of headwinds. So give your give yourself some grace. Like if you're looking at your P&L right now, you know, here in the middle of 2023 and you're like, well, boy, I got 5% last year. I must be dead. That actually might be more normal than you think it is. But don't don't think that that's going to be normal forever. I think we are, we're, we're, we're continuing to want to see the market get better. And we want to, we work too hard and we risk too much to take a 2% profit margin for too long. And so sure. getting a 10% is really crucial. And then I think if you're going to exit, getting it closer to that 15% net profit. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Super valuable content, um, Tyler. Thanks again. All right. Yeah. So with that, let's talk about maybe some of the levers that people can be pulling you know, as they prepare to exit, right? If people are wanting to exit and maybe they're sitting at that five to 7% net profit margin right now, but they want to increase it, what's been kind of your advice or recommendations? Or ideally, let's talk about maybe some case studies of clients that you've worked with to really kind of help them prepare to exit well in advance of saying, hey, guess what, Tyler? I'm exiting. I've got a LOI on the table. It's like, well, it's kind of a little too late, right? So maybe walk us through that process. What should people be doing now? Yeah, this is a great time to be investing in your business. And so one case study, we'll call we'll call him Don. Uh, they were already doing a million a month in sales, but they had no accounting system. So they were a spreadsheet, napkin, and a prayer, you know, that kind of thing. But the thing that they were doing really well, uh, Don and his team, where first of all, they had a mission that mattered, like their products really solved problems. They really were uh, doing good things in their community. And and so they were actually literally a real brand with a real mission. They were really gifted leaders. So I want to give these guys, they made a ton of money because they're really good at what they do. Um, and so some of the things that helped, obviously, just getting accrual bookkeeping done for as many months as we could so that, you know, a year later when they went to market, they were ready. It was pristine. That's kind of the First blocking attack, let's get bookkeeping from zero to, to something. Uh, number two is inventory management. They really invested pretty heavily in being able to put a, because they had a pretty complex catalog. So being able to put a number on their inventory each month, keeping up with it. Uh, people think that's an accounting problem. It's partly accounting, but it's mostly operations. Do I have, does my um, lowest level warehouse worker know how to properly receive an inventory uh you know, container when it comes in, right? That kind of thing. And so Don made those investments. Uh, and then the thing that kind of hits on what you're talking about, let's say that the profitability wasn't where Don wanted it to be, uh, which it wasn't with some of his catalog. He started measuring what we call return on capital. So I don't want to get too nerdy geeky, although we can dive into this as much as you want to. But think about this, Josh, if you and I bought a house, we bought a piece of real estate, and then somebody told us you're going to make a million dollars when you sell this house. We actually don't know whether we're happy about that until we know what we invested to buy the house, right? In other words, a true return on investment calculation is requires both variables. What was the happiness divided by the inputs? Happiness divided mm -hmm. by input, right? And so when it comes to a product, I want to know, like on a 12-month basis, what was that PAG number? What's that true contribution margin, gross profit for product A? But I want to do that divided by how much of my money or my borrowed cash or mama's money did I have to have tied up in that product? And that's a little trickier to get our hands around, but we can kind of estimate it, right? How many, how many dollars? And so that profit divided by working capital for SKU A is the equalizing KPI for every product in the world. It doesn't matter if you're a direct mm. consumer or on a marketplace, if you're international, if you're not, if I can calculate that return on working capital for every product in my portfolio, I'm going to immediately see, oh my gosh, I'm getting like five cents a year return on investment in this product that I thought I loved. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't love it because I, even though I have good profit margins, I never move it. It has really slow velocity. So I'm sitting on that cash forever. And you might be surprised to find, wow, 
I didn't even like the green one. The green one's my favorite one now, man. That that baby is really generating high returns. And so mm. something that I was really proud of Don and his team for doing is looking at their pretty robust catalog and saying, oh boy, these 10 products are below the line. We're going to give them, um, we're going to give them a, a nurture sequence to try to get them back. If they can't get back, we're going to have to kill them. And we don't feel great about it, but they're not our children. We're going to have to let them go. We're going to have to redeploy <laughs> those capital resources into products that are generating a strong annual return. So I think um, if you're looking for that super great benchmark, if you, um, by the way, here's the easiest way to do this. Forget about it on a SKU level. If you pull up that P&L, that profit and loss statement for your last 12 months that are completed, and, and give me a real number for that post-advertising gross profit. What was the real profit after Amazon fees, after advertising for my entire company? And then mm. divide that by whatever my average inventory balance was for that 12-month period. I mean, you just may have to eyeball. Well, what was the balance sheet? January, February, March, April, May, June. Mm. Eh, about 250K in inventory. I don't need this to be exact. Profit divided by that average inventory balance is going to give you that return on capital for your entire portfolio. The guys that got these 7 and 8X multiples during the like fever of aggregator, um, including Don, by the way, they were getting about a 4X return on capital for the year. Mm. So that means that over a 12 month period, if they made a million dollars in profit, they only had to have $250,000 tied up in average inventory to make that million in profit. That's obscenely mm. productive capital allocation. The average across the board is about 1.8 to two for a year. <clears throat> and if you're below one X, eh, you may be feeling That's some tough. pain. Yeah, yeah, it's really difficult because it means you're having to borrow a lot of money to, to stay afloat. Fascinating. Um, that's really interesting as, as you focus on, you know, I, I honestly haven't heard that much from many accountants that we've worked with that focus on that, you know, return on capital, right? Even at a skew level, but you could roll it up just like you did in that example, just to give yourself a, a general idea of where you're at, because I think this then correlates 100% into your cash flow needs and your working capital needs, correct? Um, Tyler, I know you have another case study. Why don't you share another case study with us? Yeah, so another one was um, was Ricky. So another client that came in had a really, again, this kind of started from he knew his customer. Sometimes, by the way, in e-commerce, we can kind of forget that these are real people buying our products. And so this idea of how can I really become an expert at what her needs are or what his needs are and actually engineer products that are really just cool, right? So I think I think the premium exits are still going to flow towards people with just great products, right? I mean, we can talk all day about engineering a few cents, but that's number one. And so Ricky had done that really cool lifestyle, kind of outdoor um, brand, had this kind of niche following, had done a good job of going multi-channel where Amazon was still kind of king, but that had a wholesale channel and a really thriving Shopify site. And again, came to us. Now he had bookkeeping, um, but it was a hot mess. He wasn't really clear. He was a little confused. And we identified pretty quickly once we corrected his accounting that, ooh, you know, you're getting this model that you have is crushing you on storage fees. Why do we have a warehouse? We're overspending on our ads. That tacos number and a few of our core products that we thought were heroes were bad. And so, again, you, you, you made this comment earlier, Josh. What if I'm at that five to seven percent? I want to really get up to 10 percent net profit. The reason that whole discussion on return on working capital um, is even pertinent is that it gives you the power to try to identify which of your products are killing you. Because in almost every catalog, unless you have like five products, you may know this. If you have like five SKUs, you already know this. But if you have more than 10, you may have a product that's sneaky hurting you and you're not paying attention to it. And so for Ricky, the ability to, again, get the macro, we're mostly happy. But these are an area uh, areas, storage and, um, and tacos that we're concerned with. Now we deep dive into the product level to say, wait a minute. Oh, it's only tacos on these two products that are killing us. Mm. Go to our marketing team and say, hey, why are we bidding on these keywords that have nothing to do with this product? This customer is never going to convert. Ah, we can fix that. That's a fixable problem. And then when it came to storage, you know what? Now it's time to look at 3PL. It was his comment a couple of years ago because the five people I have employed in this warehouse aren't. I'm not able to keep them. I'm not good at that. I thought I was going to be good at it, but I'm not. Yeah. Right. And so simplified his operation. 
And then the second question he had that I think was so crucial going towards his exit was, Tyler, I'm growing fairly organically. My, my wife's kind of over me taking out debt. How fast can I afford to grow and internally fund the cash flow? In other words, I don't want to have to take out too much more debt. And so the cool thing is that that net profit number actually gives you a budgeting tool to say, hey, my business after everything that I need it for gives me the ability to grow my inventory needs by X number of dollars per month because I'm going to make that in profit. And that allows me to internally fund. And so after looking at it closely, he did decide to go get um, a loan. He kind of was fortunate, right, because a lot of those uh, SBA programs were coming out during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But he didn't, uh, he was willing to take the foot off the gas a little bit and prioritize profitability plus a little bit of growth. And then he ended up just getting another just monster exit from an aggregator. And I think what was so satisfying is he's just a regular guy, wife, kids, works hard, does things the right way, you know, for him to get a five plus X multiple exit on this business that he works so hard. It was really, it was really meaningful for me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love making money, but I think seeing Seeing these heroes that are really de designing great products really want to make the world a better place. I think that was super awesome, honestly, to get to see him succeed. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, one of my favorite things is Amazon has leveled the retail playing field in so many ways. Right. You go back yes. in the day and like, how do you how do you create a new brand or a new product? You have to go try to get it into the stores. Right. And then you're paying slotting fees. And it's like all of this upfront capital where now somebody from their basement could be like, hey, here's my product idea. And for maybe a hundred bucks, you've tested out your idea and maybe you've sold out of your first 20 units. And then you're like, all right, I'm onto something. Let's double down, right? So you went from, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in investment down to, you know, a hundred dollar investment. So, I mean, it's game changing for many people that see it as such and have that vision, like these case studies that you talked about that a normal everyday, you know, guy with the but with a lot of hustle and grit and vision can do some phenomenal things so i love those case studies my one question that i'm going to ask you here tyler on this is for larger sellers like myself to, who have large portfolios of products right we have 1300 SKUs. um one of our challenges has been with our outsourced accounting team they don't offer SKU level profitability right and so being able to track, I, I totally hear you that I guarantee you I have some losers, but I've just never taken the time to, you know, lift up the hood because it's like, I've got 1300. I'm just going to keep launching products, right? That's I, I'm, I'm good with that space. So how do you go about like if you have a large portfolio, how do you go about measuring skew profitability skew by skew? Yeah, so I think uh, if you are predominantly Amazon, so I actually don't know this, Josh, are you more than 50% Amazon in terms of your sales? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Oh, baby. He's yeah, in we're like 90 plus. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're the profile that I think we feel most comfortable. So almost everyone, Josh, that fits into your category is already, again, paying for some kind of a tool that is has an API connection to Amazon and can pull the data. And so... Uh, that you just need to make sure that you're using that tool. And so I think a 30 minute or 20 minute a week exercise of, honestly, Helium 10's got a great tool. It's not the most user friendly on the SKU level, but what I can at least do is download the CSV or have my assistant download that CSV. And now that I've uploaded that Atlanta cost to get sold, I can kind of do management by exception, right? If I were to imagine this 1300 mm -hmm. line spreadsheet, I can sort it. And which of the ones are getting me unusually bad? Like I'm going to have a red line if they're below 15% profit or maybe if they're some other issues. I'm going to, by the way, I want to make sure I say this, especially when you use a tool like Helium 10, you can be tempted to overreact because of a child parent relationship. So just be careful. You guys yeah. all know this, but some accountant boys out there don't know this. Just be careful to be okay if one of the variants has a lot of ads and the other one has zero just because of the way those child parent relationships. So if you have a tool that can help you organize by parent, that's ideal upload that land cost to get sold by pie unit. And then just, you need to monitor it. Uh, and you need to monitor it every week. And, and, and it's the most, it's one of the most important things you can do. So there's no excuse. You just have to do it. And the nice thing is you're already paying hundred bucks a month for healing 10 or for taking metrics or for one of these other tools, sell it, use, use the tool. And so I think that's the first, um, you can do it manually. You can pull a UTR from Amazon and you can pivot it. And boy, that's a whole heck of a lot of work. And the thing yeah. that um, you guys all know this is that um, these tools just have us. They own us. And here's why. 
since Amazon is still deleting that ad data after whatever it is, 60 or 90 days, we are never going to be able to get through due diligence and put together a compelling argument that our advertising in SKU A was this versus SKU B, mm. unless we continue to database that advertising campaign data, which means we have no choice but to go pay someone to build a Google Studios back in, and we're going to go ahead and database it ourselves. That's fine if that's what you want to do, or just don't let that credit card on Helium 10 go out. I'm going to keep paying those guys. I don't have choice because they're going to uh -huh. warehouse that data forever for me and give me that compelling picture per SKU that I can. Uh, um, and, and so to your point, like you have 1300 SKUs, I want to do some kind of a macro glance that helps me identify the 10 that deserve my attention. And then I want to spend a few minutes on each of those trying to diagnose what the problem is. Problems could be um, excessive refunds. That's a, that's actually a thing that still happens. So I'm like, mm. oh, well. The refunds ratio on product A is higher than my re the rest of my portfolio. Let's go look at the reviews. Let's go make sure there's nothing confusing in my listing. That does happen. Somebody uh, maybe maybe changed the wording on our listing. That happens with large catalogs. And so I'm going to start at refunds. I want to look at um, if Amazon attributed any inbound freight. Maybe that's unusual. It only goes in twice a year. I'm going to not be too panicked about that one. And then I'm going to take a close look at tacos, right? And that, that fat factor related to advertising. And then I'm going to have to make a judgment call to say, am I really worried about SKU A or is it just kind of a short term thing? This is no big deal. If, it, if I'm really worried about it, uh, it kind of goes on to my issues list where my team needs to solve this. And it either gets solved by getting, we call it keep, cuddle or kill, right? Either something's mm -hmm. clearly uh -huh. a keeper, it might need to be nurtured a little bit. And if it can't be nurtured to health, it may need to be cut. Interesting. I love that. And I think you gave us a good framework to work off of there. Uh, a follow-up question I have on that is how accurate do you see that Amazon attribution data for ads, not in regards to sales, but in regards to spend? Because I know for people with larger portfolios or catalogs, you will have multiple SKUs running in one single ad campaign, right? And so being able to do, to attribute, yeah, my campaign spent $1,000 a day, right? But I had 20 different SKUs in that campaign. Um, do you see any issues or have you run into any issues with that where, you know, Amazon's not really attributing the right amount of spend on a SKU or... We just don't know whether they are or not because we're just going off of whatever they give us. Yeah, I think it is. I think if you're running one campaign to 20 variants, again, it's probably just important to look at things on a parentage. You may kind of be zipping up those 20 SKUs into one picture since you don't have a separate mm. campaign for each. Because you're exactly right. It's not uncommon at all for me. I'm talking about Tyler as a consumer to go to my Amazon app to search for something and then go ahead and click on the green one. Cause I like the way it looks better than the blue one. Like that's not an uncommon buyer path, but I think to your point, Josh, the reality is that Amazon still bills us on clumps. <laughs> we get a clump billing yep. from Amazon either daily right. or monthly. And that clump billing doesn't always match it. Never. They're never giving us that granular data. And so, you know, when it comes to sales and refunds, we get to take Amazon's orders API data and then finally reconcile it against the payment. But when it comes to cost of advertising, uh, we're trusting that that attribution is pr pretty close. Yeah. Isn't this, it kind of sucks. Isn't this the reality of being with Amazon is that you're almost always trusting Amazon to grade its own paper. And that, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. feel good. It doesn't feel good at all. But I think I, what I found is I think that attribution, especially on a parent level, is 95% accurate, which means it's enough for me right. to directionally make choices. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that's a good way to look at it because that's always been the question. The debate is like, how real is the attribution? I think their, their brand, you know, referral links, you know, there's attribution issues there too, that people keep talking about, but yeah. I digress. Um, I think the other thing that you could um, point out here, if you're looking at things at a skew level just as I'm thinking about it, is Amazon often will remeasure your product and put you in a higher FBA tier, like fulfillment fee, right? And so you, if you're not looking at that month over month, you could think that all is well, but Amazon jacked up your fulfillment fee and now you're in the oversize, uh, you know, fulfillment for no reason, right? Except that somebody somebody measured incorrectly. I mean, there's a lot of softwares that go through that process and automate doing that for you. But I think that's a big miss. We started correcting that in our business about 18 months ago. And oh my goodness, I can't, I couldn't believe like we, I think have 
now captured well more than six figures worth of just like crap that Amazon had remeasured incorrectly. It's like, no, <laughs> give us our money back. Like, uh, this is a mistake. So that was something we were sleeping on for a long time. Do you see that often as well? Yeah, same. Yeah, we see the same thing. And so, again, you kind of think about that framework that we mentioned a minute ago, just looking for things that are losers. And now the question isn't, should I kill this loser? We, we don't know that yet. Well, the question is, let's try to determine why and mm. whether it's refunds or um, FBA fees have doubled all of a sudden. That may be a flag that says we need to dig in. And, and yes, we do see this. Actually, question for you, Josh, because you guys are managing a big portfolio. Like, how often are you doing that kind of analysis for your portfolio? Is this like tooled up where it's pretty automated now, or is this something that like every month you do it manually? Or what, what does that look like for your team? Yeah. So right now, with the FBA fees specifically, we have you know the Gatita tool is going through and creating those cases. We originally had you know VAs that were going through and manually doing that. But it just became so numerous, like we were always creating remeasurement cases. And so we were just like, you know what, we could set this up. Now, it took us a lot of time. It took us about a month to be like, with 1,300 SKUs, here are the exact dimensions for every single one of our products, right? And here's how much they weigh. Like that took a lot of setup time. But now we gave, we gave it all to Gatita, and now they kind of automate that for us. I think you just described probably the best practice there is I think this is one of those tasks that unless your catalog is really straightforward, finding a software plus a competent service provider, um, Gatita is one of those really good ones out there that just pick someone you trust and try not to burn too much of your internal RAM chasing Amazon cases because you'll run out of time if you do that. Yeah, so true. Um, Tyler, we've shared so much value. Thanks so much for all of your information and content that you've shared with us today. Uh, one of the final questions, I know I'll ask you more final questions, but one of the things I'd like to kind of wrap up here is inflation, right? Um, you talk about a lot of margin compression happening, right? From Amazon raising their FBA fees, the cost of advertising is going up. We know all of those things. So what are sellers to do and what are you seeing as effective strategies? I mean, the one thing that we do have control over is raising our prices, but maybe we can only do that to a certain extent or, hey, maybe it's at least worth testing out increasing the prices. What's been your perspective and what's your advice in the inflationary environment that we're in where I anticipate the same thing? Amazon's only going to continue to increase fees. Ad costs are only going to increase. What's a seller to do? Yeah, so this is this is so important. And I think the, the biggest mistake that you could make is to kind of stay asleep at the wheel. This is very dynamic. Um, to the first point, you have no choice. You have to A-B test some pricing increases for your products and try to test. You know, if you remember from your intro to economics class, that price elasticity, you got to test it because you don't know. And, and so many of our clients have been pleasantly surprised with how much the volume didn't dip when they raised the price by a couple bucks. So I think you got to run those tests. You got to measure them. And then the second thing you have to be aware of, I, I think, at least where we're coaching our clients, is the feds are raising interest rates specifically to slow down demand to stave off a recession. In other words, if you just kind of put yourself in the in the kind of mindset of the feds right now, they have a mission. And the mission is to try to make the recession shallow if, you know, or, or stave it off as much as possible. I'm not sure that they're doing that, but like, and so understand that that is going to work. Eventually that will work. And you're either going to have lower session counts like we saw in a couple of quarters in 2022, or we're going to see our competitors choose to overinvest in ads to push inventory out so that they're not sitting on it. My point is, is I just want you to make a strategic decision on purpose and not on accident. If this is a product that you are concerned, maybe losing its viability. Okay. My edge is eroding because of additional FBA fees or because my supply chain is more expensive to manage now. I don't want you to double your tacos for that product. I want you to be honest enough to say this may be a product that's moving towards obsolescence within my catalog. Mm -hmm. And I need to put together my plan instead of paying an extra 100K in ads, let's invest that 100K to go ahead and develop something new. But alternatively, yeah. if I look at the market and I say, no, 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 I've got a couple of key competitors that are blowing through too much inventory. They're paying double the tacos. Now I've got to make a decision whether I want to continue competing with them or not. 
it is an acceptable choice as the CEO to say, I want to continue to compete to keep my ranking, but do it on purpose. Like put a name on that dollar. Say, this is going to be a $50,000 bet that I'm placing. And by placing this $50,000 bet, I am hoping to gain X amount of profit in the next two years because of how much better this product is going to perform. And then guess what? You're your own board. If you're convinced that that argument makes sense, invest with confidence and measure it. But if you have to look at it, because here's what happens a lot of times. like, well, my competitors are raising prices. I've been number two on the first page for a year. I've got to maintain ranking. But when I force them to actually articulate, what does the back end of this look like when you burn 50K in ads over the next year? They don't have a compelling argument. And so it's a negative ROI. And that means, unfortunately, uh, they may have to accept a slowdown in sales in order to protect margin and not really create catastrophic harm to the business. Yeah, I think I definitely lean more towards the camp of taking that extra amount of inventory or that, you know, $100,000, as you mentioned, right? You have two choices. Do I continue to, you know, keep a product? on life support that it's getting a lot of margin compression. People continue to reduce the prices, even though, you know, FBA fees continue to go up or do you go reinvest and say, all right, maybe this product's just going to die. Right. But let's go look for some better opportunities. I think that's where I lean more towards. And that's why we're always launching. We launch 20 to 30 new SKUs every single month for that purpose, because certain categories just, all of a sudden, you got a bunch of overseas manufacturers that are okay making a penny a sell. And you're just like, good luck. I'm out, though, right? Um, and on the flip side, I think what I have seen, you, you talked about this. I have been pleasantly surprised as we have increased the prices of our products. Now, some of them did go down in their sales velocity, but there have been a good number. I would say, honestly, the majority have maintained their exact same sales velocity same organic ranking. And now I've been able to increase the product on some products, $5, right? So now I'm even more profitable. And for me, it was when my back was up against a wall, right? Our supplier increased the co- the the manufacturing cost for the product, right? And then FBA fees were going through the roof. And so I was like, well, I ain't just going to, I'm not just going to take it. I'm going to increase my prices. But it was a mental mindset shift for myself because I thought we were already, you know, one of the leading, you know, I guess we were already one of the most expensive options in that product category. And so in my mind, we were at 1999 at the time. And I was like, Oh man, like once you hit that $20 and something cents, like it's going to be this huge mental barrier for people and they're just going to be out. Right. But we tested, we did $20 and 99 cents. Nothing changed. Let it go for a week. All right. Twenty one ninety nine. Nothing changed. We kept go like the velocity stayed the same. Our organic ranking stayed the same. We went all the way up to twenty four ninety nine, which allowed us to get better margin than we had even prior to all of the FBA fee increases and the manufacturing increases as well. So I think like that would be my you know input to our listeners as well as like like you said, A B test, right? Just increase it. It could be just a mental mindset shift. I know for myself, it was more often than not. It's like, oh, I don't know if I would pay this. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think. See what the market thinks. So, um, Tyler, I also want to dive into real quick. Uh, you mentioned that you have a mastermind group, Sellers Roundtable. Tell us more about that. Yes, it's it's pretty small. I, I'm I'm getting some pressure to turn it into maybe more of a business. There's there's 15 of us. We get get together a couple times a month in Zoom, and then we get together twice a year live, normally just north of Atlanta, and just do some planning. I think for me, to be honest with you, Josh, this was I was in a CEO roundtable for the healthcare business I built, and it was such a godsend to be around other thinkers, you know, the, um, so my, I don't know that we'll have a, although if you're interested in a seller drone table, you know, reach out to me. I'm happy to tell you more about it. But even if we don't have a seat, find a mastermind. I think that's the big picture here. Find a group of, you know, men and women that you can trust that don't have a dog in the fight, except that they want to grow and they want to grow with you and that they're okay. If you need to come in one month and just like cry, <laughs> right. Cause things are hard or it's a conversation that's more difficult to have with your spouse. I think having that kind of support group as a CEO, because a CEO can be a lonely place sometimes. It's just meaningful. So make sure that you um, surround yourself with thoughtful people that you trust, that fit your culture, that fit your vibe. Maybe it's Sellers Roundtable. If you think that might be the case, reach out to me. But even if it's not, find something because this is important. It matters. 
Awesome. I love that, Tyler. All right. As we wrap up this episode, I do love to leave the audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. So, Tyler, here's the three takeaways that I noted. Let me know if you think I'm missing something. Okay. Number one is you've got to get the basics down. Um, and, and you mentioned this earlier. You, you know, you'd be surprised the number of seven and maybe even eight figure sellers that don't even have their basics down in terms of accounting. They're doing things with spreadsheets. Um, they don't even have an accounting team or they're not even looking at their numbers. So first and foremost, if you're in that camp, like, oh, I would highly recommend that you, you know, get on board with one of these outsourced accounting solutions, because my goodness, it's going to give you a lot more confidence and clarity. And especially in the environment that we're in with inflation and Amazon fees going up, you need to get very clear in making those strategic decisions as a CEO like Tyler mentioned that, hey, am I going to invest my hundred grand to keep this product on life support because I see it a huge return down the road? Or is it better to take this hundred grand and go invest it in new product opportunities? You only know that when you're looking at the financial data. So that's number one. Number two is starting to manage the profitability of your business at a skew level um, approach. So look at things and start killing the products that literally are just eating money away from your business. Um, and you have to emotionally detach yourself from some of those products. But that's the beauty of the data is that it's, it's just going to be black and white, <clears throat> maybe even red, um, but black and white to show you this is, this is who you should be, you know, focusing your time and attention on. So that's takeaway number two. And then takeaway number three is kind of piggybacking off of our last conversation is I would encourage everybody to um, A-B test your prices, especially in the environment that we're in, overcome some of those mental barriers, but increase your prices. And, you know, my example and experience has been some of the competitors will start following you and raising their prices as well, but they're waiting for people to kind of start, start making those moves. Um, and then you're going to end up in a more profitable situation, targeting again that net margin, you know, when all is said and done at around 15% means you're very healthy and, you know, you could be looking at potential exits down the road. So, Tyler, what are your thoughts as we summarize those three takeaways for the audience? Anything else you would add? I think you nailed it there. Those are great. Do, do those things, guys, and you're going to be really happy. Awesome. Well, Tyler, the final three questions I want to ask you here. Um, what has been the most influential book that you've read and why? Okay. So the one I've been geeking out on the last couple of years, I, I do, I do read a lot. Uh, if you search my website enough, I have a book report on about 55 of my favorite books there. So I'm a, I'm an, I'm a reader nerd, but the one I keep chewing on is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Mm. So, uh, he's a fellow bald guy like me, um, former, I think college athlete that really pivoted into performance coaching and his his take on how to get one percent better each day how to do how uh, actually I, I guess his mantra is you're not going to rise to the level of your goals you're going to fall to the level of your habits and i have found that to be so true in my life so that's the one that's really impacted me the most here in the last year i 100 percent echo that book fantastic book it's one you could reread every single month and take a lot of insight from very good uh, what's your favorite software tool that you've been using or you've seen other sellers using that you think people need to be paying attention to? The one that's been, uh, we've talked a lot about the most popular ones out there. The one that I want to shout out to today is a tool called Merchant Spring. These guys are, I think they're based in Australia. And if you have a multi-channel um, approach and are looking to integrate to all of your Amazon International uh, I think plus eBay and Walmart and being able to like pull those sales in, in a way that you can kind of aggregate it. Uh, we use it because we are able to kind of get a bulk for all of our CFO clients. We can kind of try to help create some of that skew level. It doesn't solve the ROAS problem for Shopify. So it's still a little bit, you know, doesn't solve the full problem, unfortunately, but merchant spring, I think it's .io is one that you should check out. Awesome. All right. Final question. Who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that uh, you think our sh listeners should be paying attention to? 
every time I've ever had a conversation, he, he called me about a week ago when we were talking. Every time I talk to James Thompson, I get smarter. Somehow I get better talking to that guy every time he, he gives me a call. We're, we're, we're friends. He's a good dude. Uh, he's the guy that founded Prosper Show. He was one of the founding partners of Buy Box Experts and had a strong exit of that company. And now he's an investor and a, a consultant. And uh, yeah, I just feel like it's really great to have friends like that that are always seem to be thinking at a level higher than I am. Like I, I consider myself kind of a deep thinker. And then I talk to James, I'm like, wow, that guy's like around the next corner and over the hill, and I'm not even close. So he's he's definitely somebody. If you ever hear him at a conference or hear him on a podcast, I would definitely stop and listen. We've had James on the podcast. I think uh, I think ten up episodes prior to you here, Tyler. So people okay. should go check that one out because he did great, lay a lot of great insights, especially as it relates to what acquirers, right, or private equity companies, venture capitalists, what they're looking for when they're looking to acquire you. So he shares a lot of great tips in that episode as well. So thanks for sharing that. Now, Tyler, to wrap it all up, um, where should people follow you? Tell us more about Seller Accountant and uh, how should people reach out to you? The website's the easiest, selleraccountant.com. We have a lot of great resources there. A lot of them are, are free, easy to get a hold of. I also have a little fledgling podcast that we just finished season one of called Return on Podcast. <laughs> get it, I'm clever, Return on Investments. That is Return on Podcast. So if you want to kind of think through investing and profit on a little bit of a deeper level, uh, that might be a pod worth putting in your stream or your feed. I love it. I definitely recommend everybody, uh, you know, reach out to Tyler if you're in need of some accounting services. He shared a lot of great insights. He has a lot of uh, great experience here. So, Tyler, thanks so much for joining us on the episode today. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.